This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Many times your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism, maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to. But um, uh, it may not, it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in, a, in any other way other than it sounding critical. Or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times uh, I, I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know you need the feedback, right? So um, remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships uh, generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about f- feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So, um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things, others might nitpick other things, and if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate. So it, it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're, if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know, there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another another thing I always believe is check your sources, right? So, a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is. But that may also be the exact same person that never ever 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 cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house is um, notice the notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess, but they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful. 
what it might be telling you is, boy, when the, the, they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, they, uh, they'll they say anything. Um, is your partner sometimes um, – you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do. Right. So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. Check your sources. Uh, There there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, It also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession they may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do, too, when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that, and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that, that is there and, and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. <laughs> it's just somebody that's, that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The, and, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell Everybody, what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone. Or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're what they're what's truthful about what they're saying. Accept it. Actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and, and I'm sorry it makes you upset. And I'll work on making it better. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend show. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn, though, as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others, don't turn over your self-esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something. And a lot of this, I think, comes from just our childhood. If, you know, if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child, 
and we felt, you know, put down and deeply unloved and uncared for, sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually relook at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly. And um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it. And I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness. I'm already mad, and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already so thanks for the feedback, um, but it, but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually. I think we're supposed to feel guilt, and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you to uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person. I'm so sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing, but I'm not. <laughs> when you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks, and uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to to feedback, and I don't want to empower too many people to uh, you know to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another. And interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get, the higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it? You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. The importance of um, learning a second language. It is interesting. I I have friends that both speak Spanish or uh, other languages, and they they make it a habit in their family to to use those languages more. And they, they actually do it as a way to to bring themselves t- together because they both speak Spanish. So why not speak more Spanish and then keep your language alive? It's something that you can do together. It actually uh, seems to energize their relationships a little bit. And I realize that whatever it is, um, you can make anything a hobby or uh, you know a learning opportunity. My father-in-law learned Spanish just on the side. He was a doctor, a cardiologist, and for fun, he wanted to learn Spanish. So he would have uh, anybody that spoke Spanish in his uh, when he was doing his procedures, he would make them speak Spanish to him. And every day on the drive in, he'd listen to Spanish um, recordings and try to learn how to do it. And now he's fluent in Spanish. Like, come on. 
He made did it as a hobby. There really are a lot of things that we could probably try to do with our significant other, our loved ones, where we we actually can find more ways to connect, find more ways to be together on a hobby, find more ways to be together, whether it's language or whether it's just you know getting out and uh, enjoying tennis or riding bikes or whatever you like to do together. But um, one of the things I, I hear a lot from my clients are, you know, they fall out of love. It's just not easy to keep the fire alive and the flame burning. And um, I, I, I'm i like, yeah, well, sure, passion. You know, you want passion in your marriage, but passion takes energy and you've got to somehow engage energy in your marriage. If you want more passion and connection, you're going to have to exert more energy. Oh, yeah, see, I don't have time for that. I kind of just want to take a pill that I just uh, gives us passion. But uh, many marriages are, are really starving because we don't exert the energy we need, just like we don't exert the energy that it takes to to make um, something like learning a language takes energy. I, I learned a language and I'm still not focusing on it or, or giving it any energy. And when you don't give something energy, it fades. You start to lose it. And so I would just challenge all of us. If you want to make things important to you, you're going to have to give it some energy. We always talk about just giving it time, and time is great, but it also is going to take energy. You're going to have to decide how, you know, how bad you want something and is it worth the energy you have to to take. In fact, uh, my kids were saying the other day, "Hey dad, let's buy a boat. We want a boat. Let's get a boat." And in my head, the whole decision is about energy <laughs> because my kids have never – they don't know what it feels like to ski all day and then come off the boat uh, and be done and bring the boat in and then have to spend the next few hours cleaning the boat you know, and drying the boat and washing the boat and taking care of the boat. They don't know what that's like. But in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really not even about skiing, you guys. But then others would say, yeah, but that's how you teach your kids to work, right? You teach them to work that. Yeah, but that's just more energy. So um, think about it. What takes your energy and what gives you energy back? And that's probably um, something that we all ought to be looking at. If you want more excitement in life, if you want more connection in marriage and relationships, if you want more um you know, learning and growing, you're going to have to figure out how to, you know, energize uh, yourself enough to go do something about it. Also, maybe you're going to have to cut down on other things that you're doing. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm not, I can't do that. I don't have the bandwidth to keep doing all of these other things. But um, it also, there is benefit in um, finding activities where you could like work together as a family and use and conserve all that energy to, for example, be with your family. We play tennis as a family, and that makes it so every time we go do our hobby, we're doing it as a family. And that all of a sudden gives us not only time together, but something that we can share together, something that we enjoy together, and uh, something that brings us a lot of peace. So life is good, and whatever it is you choose to you know, you know, excel at or make a hobby or bring into your life, let's do it. That's great. And manage your energy as you do it and see if you can involve more people into the process. Then all of a sudden your hobbies become something that are additive to your family life instead of something that divides you away from your family. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we all get into arguments, disagreements with other people. We might seek a therapist or a counselor or a friend or anyone, really, who can we can get on our side of the fight or to help us maybe sort out the fight with another person. However, when we seek compromise, are we doing it very well? And can computers compromise better than humans can? Here to speak with us today is Jacob, uh, Jacob Crandall. He's an associate professor right here at Brigham Young University, and uh, he's, he's here to help us understand computers and their ability to compromise. Jacob, thanks for being with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Now, so so you're 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 pretty much you're deep in the AI, the artificial intelligence uh, uh, research world, right? Yep. Yeah, I am. Now, to me, a lot of people are terrified of artificial intelligence. Where you know we've seen the movies where eventually they take over and they run the world, and they and they eventually uh, they eventually have more power than humans. But I I haven't thought about the power of compromise. Because I sit with couples every day that have a hard time compromising and figuring out solutions. But it did dawn on me after reading this. I thought, what power if we could just turn some of this over with and get a little help from the computer? Is that – how did you get into thinking about compromising and uh, computers? Um, yeah, it's actually been a long time. So I guess I, I'm a computer scientist, so I don't know how to interact with people very well, I guess. <laughs> so – um, I guess back when I was doing my PhD dissertation 15 years ago, I, I became intrigued with how do you cooperate and compromise with people, and um, and so I guess I've been intrigued with that ever since that time, and have been thinking about it and working on that problem, mainly from the perspective of you know can we understand if we can understand it well enough to get a computer to do it, um, can we then and um, can we then help ourselves do it? I, I love that. One of the main questions we have. So how how have you been able to get? Is it just is it just a program? Is it an algorithm? Or or how did you figure out how computers compromise? Yeah. So so it, I mean it's been a long process. So so we're in machine learning. So the machine is is supposed to take data and experience and and then figure out what to do based on its data and experience. Um, but yeah, it's essentially just a machine learning algorithm. Um, that has multiple layers added upon it over the years as we tried to figure out how to how to make it work and and recently I think we've become a lot more successful is uh, so that's actually fascinating too so part of compromising then is a learning function yeah exactly because because I think any relationship that we walk into we we don't know exactly where we should end up at right um depending on how the other person reacts to us um we're going to um, go ahead and make different decisions. But essentially, uh, if we look at it from a self-interest point of view, based on how they react to us, we're going to do different things in order to maximize our own rewards or payoffs or whatever you want. And so that's, that's the same thing we have to, to make this machine think about and learn about, too, is what kind of situations should I do different kinds of things? What should I say um, versus what should I do? What should I not say? And, and different things like that. So um it's so fascinating. It really is it's funny to just to see how you're coming at it but with such logic and um but cuz it I guess as part of this compromising and learning process humans you know we lie, we finagle, we cheat, we we misstate, we underestimate. We do all of these things as we're negotiating a compromise. Um so how do you factor all of that into a machine? 
Um, well, I, mean, I, I guess I guess it should be straightforward in saying some things we allow the machine to learn, and, and some things we, we are still hard coding. Okay. Um, because it's probably too much for the machine to take on all at once. Maybe eventually we can get there. Um, so some of the things we learn and, and things such as lying and stuff, our, our initial algorithms, we programmed them essentially not to lie. Um, but 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 that's that, that's something we we maybe will look at in the future because as we've looked at different studies between you know human human pairs and human machine pairs and machine machine pairs we we, we do notice that that humans do tend to lie um, <laughs> do we, and we lie more than the learning computer uh, yeah yeah we, oh, wow. we, well I think about half you know when we had these interactions we bring people in and, and play games where they repeatedly interact with an individual and. And they have opportunities to talk and then act. And about half the people will, will tell some kind of lie throughout the course of an interaction. Interesting. Um, and it usually costs them. <laughs> Does it? Yeah, it, it's usually costly to them, yeah. Um, is it only costly to them in with a computer or is it costly with them human to human? Human to human and human to computer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Wow. So um, so as you're, as you're creating these learning machines, you're still having to like – code some parts of it and set strict rules because the dynamics, I guess, the human dynamics are not quite understood yet. But um, where where does this go? Do you see a day where maybe couples could sit down with artificial intelligent, you know, machines and and help them talk through their issues? I I think that's a a potentiality. I I don't think we're quite there yet. Um, But yeah, I I think... I think there's multiple ways you can do it. Well, number one, you could just replace one of the spouses with a robot. Um, but I don't think we want to do that. So I, but I think <laughs> you, you could, um, you know, some of the things we're working on right now is, you know, we have these algorithms that essentially perform as well as people in relationships with other people. Um, so can we then turn these algorithms into coaches um, that kind of can walk them through a particular situation um, you know, as we've watched people in these interactions, you know, one, one thing that we've kind of observed is, well, two things we've kind of observed is, first of all, people are often disloyal, so they'll establish a cooperative relationship, and then for some reason they very often will, um, will, will choose to try to get away with something. Yeah, like, and, yeah, something that would be advantageous for them. Exactly. And they'll try to, you know, maybe just do it once, just, just to try it out. Oh, that was an accident kind of thing. Um, and, and that, you know, we'd pay people along the way. And every time they do that, on average, they lose a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and actually, the machine algorithm that we have learns to not do that. It'll learn to be very loyal. So once a cooperative relationship emerges, it'll almost always um, continue to cooperate with its partner unless its, cooper- its partner deviates from that cooperative solution. And so these are kind of like the um, – oh, what do you call them? Um, the win-win games or the, the kind of the system – the systemic games that we you know, used to do in training all the time. Uh, but if, if the situation demands cooperation and benefits most by cooperation, then, the, then um, deviating by, you know, by lying or cheating or being disloyal eventually will always, will always hurt you in the game. Exactly. That's that's what we've observed in our laboratory setting, kind of things. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So so what? So one of the problems you see with humans that that makes it harder for them to compromise is they tend to be a little more disloyal. 
they're willing to lie a little bit more. Any other le- lessons that you've learned from computers about humans? Um, well, I mean, th- those are the big things we observe. So, so when we would compare human-human pairings, human-machine pairings, and machine-machine pairings, we observe that the machine-machine pairings actually cooperate, learn to cooperate much better than the, than the machine, human-machine systems and the human-human systems. And if we, but then if we kind of do a, a, you know, a hindsight kind of evaluation of what happens in these interactions with humans, if we remove their, their disloyalty and dishonesty, they essentially have the same performance as the, the uh, two machines would have together in a relationship. Really? Um, and so based on, and so those, those are two kind of primary things that we picked out, um, we are investigating different ways of having the machine talk. So that's the, the machine has, has a different talking profile. It says different kinds of things than, than people would say. Um, our initial algorithms were a little bit angrier and more belligerent to try to get their point across, and, and humans tended to, to be a little bit nicer in the, their interactions. Um, that's kind of a function of how we've coded them up, but, but we do see differences in, in maybe a you know, the kinds of solutions and the ways it goes about it. Um, but, but essentially the big performance difference we're seeing is this dishonesty and disloyalty that we, we observe in humans. Um, again, we're speaking with Jacob Crandall, who is an associate professor here at Brigham Young University. And Crandall's research focuses on developing machines and algorithms that learn from and collaborate with people to solve challenging problems. It seems like, Jacob, the minute you introduce talking it it also is going to change the game dramatically because um then then there's about then the whole key is about interpreting the talk and and trying to understand what you meant when you said that yeah exactly so we we call this cheap talk so so i have to you know go back a little historically we you know as a as a like i said i'm a computer scientist we don't think like normal people we don't <laughs> we don't understand normal normal people very well and so for a long time we were we were trying these algorithms out in interactions with people in the silent world, right? So it'd be kind of like you, you go in it and, you know, two children go and play with each other, but they never, never communicate. They just do things and react to each other. Yeah. And, and we found in that situation that, you know, it took us a long time to kind of figure out, hey, this actually isn't a very natural interaction and that's why we're failing. Um, and so then we had to figure out, we, we realized, hey, why don't we make the dumb thing talk? And and that can and that immediately completely changed the way that people interacted with each other and with the machine when we allow this ability to before we do something every round we're going to go ahead and, and exchange some messages and maybe negotiate and we call that cheap talk because it's non-binding you you can say whatever kinds of things you want to say um, and at the end of the day you can then do something completely different if, if you want. So it's non-binding, and so, so trying to figure out the kinds of things that you would, you would say and then the kinds of messages that you should react to has been another you know, set of research we've been trying to deal with. Wow, that's, I think that's super interesting. The, um, I mean, just even recently sitting down with some clients, uh, they, well, you know, the, husband, the, the husband is trying to run his business. The wife doesn't like how he runs his business. Because he floats the business on credit a little bit too much, and she, but he doesn't like how she always needs money for to run the household, and they, they, they literally argue about it every time I hear him talking. We, we teach him how to communicate through it, but they're, they're again, maybe, maybe some of it is a little disloyalty at a certain time, a little dishonesty at another time. 
And I could see how if you could introduce a computer coach that that's not going to get caught up, but could still understand the argument and not get caught up in the the disloyalty and the dishonesty, it might be able to come up with new solutions. Yeah, exactly. We have actually, yeah, you're exactly right. And it, or or just maybe, I think a lot of times we're we're unaware of what we do. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the machine could could kind of point out because one thing we have observed in these studies, if, if we have people. You know, we have an interaction happen, and then we have people reflect on this interaction that's occurred, and they'll tell a completely different story than what we see actually happened from the facts and the data. Interesting, yeah. Um, and, and so that the the machine could could provide an opportunity to come back and say, you know what, this happened. You never provided your 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 partner with a, the opportunity to to do this particular thing, even though you didn't. And maybe you should give them another chance and maybe they'll react differently. Well, and Um, how much distraction, I mean, how many times what we're arguing about changes and we're no longer arguing about the same thing or we create more smoke around the issue so that we can't really see what's really being argued. There's a lot of complexity, isn't there? Yeah, there's a lot of complexity. And another thing we have looked at kind of along those lines is, you know, how do people react to different ways of talking? Um, so we had one one set of one algorithm that would go ahead and and try to follow Dale Carnegie's principles from how to win friends and influence people. Oh yeah. Um, and you know, kind of the things like never complain or criticize. Yeah. Speak in terms of the other person's interests. So so we use the exact same behavior algorithm. It does the same thing, but it voices things differently than say another algorithm. And and we dubbed this one. Biff Tannen after <laughs> Back to the Future, not to name any political people yeah. or anything. Um, and then we, we, you know, we, so we'd compare if you, if you talk like Biff Tannen, kind of a bully, or you talk like Dale Carnegie tells us we should talk, how do people react to that differently? And so that's another opportunity to come back and say, hey, maybe because you're talking like this, this is the kind of results you're going to get. If you had talked differently, we suspect this kind of reaction would have happened. How um, cool is that? Well, and you're just getting started, really, right? I mean, this is now. It sounds like you're younger uh, in the field too, Jacob. So you'll be able to do this for the next thirty years. Um, maybe I feel like I feel like I'm forgetting everything now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Then, then you're the perfect absent-minded professor. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so going forward, that's kind of where where you see we're going to end up kind of moving it, and then eventually also letting the computer uh, be more of a tool to teach. Have you been testing its ability to teach people? Yeah, we've done some some very very early stuff on this that we're we're kind of working on. Um, Nothing concrete that or, or authentic yet I could really report on, but that is a direction we're going is, is, you know, now you're kind of getting into the parent trying to teach a teenager kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and so you have to figure out, so, so you might know exactly what to do, but you have to figure out how to, when to, when to say things, how to say it. Um, and that's a different problem altogether. It is something we're, we're actively looking at. Well, and again, what if it was just a monitor that was listening to the conversation and could help people remain aware of how the conversation's turning bad. I mean, yep. I, I, if I, I'm telling you, there is a huge market for that. People pay me money to sit there and help them figure out what's going wrong in the conversation. But if I had a computer, they could just wear, you know, something on their watch. 
Yep. Uh, then all of a sudden an alarm goes off, maybe a little stun gun or something, a little <laughs> tase here, a tase there. We'll straighten it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There. <laughs> just, I'm just giving you some ideas, Jacob. They're yeah, all thanks. free. I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think we're going to – that will be the Nobel laureate now <laughs> here. <it>. We're set. <laughs> that will be so good. Well, Jacob, we appreciate you, man. That is awesome stuff. Uh, wow. Jacob, thank you again. Uh, Jacob Crandall is, again, an associate professor here at Brigham Young University, and his uh, research focuses on developing machines and algorithms that that we can learn from as humans to help us collaborate better with people, solve our problems better. How cool could our future be if we could just stay attuned to that? We'll take a break, come back, do a little coach's corner on communication. It's all straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you uh, compromise better. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Welcome back, friends. You know, you think, and we do think, because we love each other, that we would just naturally not ever argue with our spouse, right? And as we were talking to Jacob Crandall about letting our artificial intelligence or other computers or machines help guide us in our conversations that, to me, is about as cool as it gets. Do you know how many times I have just sat with a couple and I can see their conversation starting to go sideways and create problems, but they they don't see it. They don't see it as it's happening, right, because they're reacting to what the other person said. And you can then start to see the negative emotion go up and go up and start to create more problems. They start spinning. Then they start, you know, making stuff up. It starts to get more and more confusing, and uh, eventually, with all the confusion, with all the negative energy and emotion, then trust starts to plummet. Then we start throwing things out. We start negatively interpreting what our per- what our partner's saying to us, and it's totally gone. And then they look at me like, "See, see, they this is what we do all the time." She says rude things like that, and you're like, "Holy cow!" How come I can see it, but you two can't see it? So what if you had an alarm system that would go off? The minute your language was getting uh, a little peaked or a little angry or you were getting too amped or your tone wasn't quite right or just the speed of your conversation was speeding up, would that not be the coolest thing? It doesn't have to, you know, be embarrassing. It could just do something to signal you that, hey, maybe now we ought to just take a time out or maybe right now we ought to to pay more attention. Now, every human, by the way, already has the ability to do that. You, you've sat with your parents or someone else, friends, another couple when you were out to dinner and you've seen the conversation start to totally turn and you can see it, right? So what if we could just become a little more sensitive in our own relationships where the minute we feel the the signs or see the signs, what if we just would start to shut down or, or do something else? So in my program, when I am teaching uh, conversation and communication skills, I always talk about vital signs. And I learned this as an EMT on an ambulance that, uh, you know, they train you for four months or whatever to become an EMT. And then when you eventually are going out on an ambulance to to help people, you don't know that much. You're still not sure exactly 
everything that's going on, right? You don't you don't know how to do everything that could happen on a scene, but you do know how to take vital signs and check vital signs. And so what I um, teach in relationship skills, there's three signs we need to look for. And this is this is the beginning of creating uh, a, a better communicator in each of us. First sign, vital sign I look for is negative emotion. When I can see that somebody's getting more and more angry, more and more frustrated, when I can hear their tone change and it's negative, then I look at that as a sign that the person or the patient, just like with the EMT, is having a problem. We use vital signs as a sign to, that we that the person needs help. They need us to do something different than what we're doing. So if I'm treating a patient and their vital signs start to plummet, then I know I probably need to stop doing what I'm doing and go check their signs and then figure out why their vitals are dropping. and uh, Or I need to do what I'm doing more quickly to get the patient stabilized again, right? But it should be communicating to us something's going on. When I see negative emotion in another person, and that can be with them yelling, with them raising their tone, it could be them rolling their eyes, it could be them just being quiet and shutting down. That's a sign. Pay attention to that in other people. When you see it in your family, your friends, your kids, pay attention to it. The other sign, other two signs I look for are negative. So I see negative emotion going up. And almost invariably when emotion goes up, you'll see understanding go down. So anytime I get more and more confused over an issue, then I know we probably are having a, a, a problem here. So I need to change what I'm doing. If I see emotion go up and understanding drop, it's a sign that we've got we've got to change what we're doing. Negative emotion and misunderstanding are two of the vital signs. And the third vital sign is mistrust. If I'm not trusting each other, uh, or if we're not seeing like we can trust each other and we and we're not getting, you know, more close or more together on this issue, then we probably have something else at play. And that sign of mistrust means you're not going to share. You're not as open as you need to be. You're holding back. You, um, you're not acting on what we're talking about. You're not believing what I'm saying. You have a lot of doubt still. You're asking a lot of questions like with a lot of doubt or judgment in them. So when I see those three things, negative emotion going up, understanding going down, and trust going down, I know we've got a problem. And what I usually would teach is I wouldn't keep talking and trying to, uh, you know, push your agenda if those signs are present. I would stop pushing your agenda and I'd go try to figure out what's going on with the other person. Why do they feel so negative? What's what? Try to clarify the understanding and try to build the trust. And until those three things are done, you're not going to get your point across. It's just not happening. And that's something that our artificial intelligence probably could do a lot more effectively than we do. We just get too hijacked in the chemistry of it all. We all are too bought in to the outcome. We're too deeply afraid of what will happen if uh, we don't, you know, if this conversation doesn't go the way we want to. So a little advice, you know, a little advice from your coach, your guide on the side. That's why we do the show, helping all of us uh, communicate at a higher level, seeing if we can't lift the world that way. We'll continue the journey straight ahead. We've, we'll be talking about uh, family dinners. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends. Uh, Dr. Susan Newman is a social psychologist who specializes in issues affecting family life and suggests that eating dinner together as a family is, a, is good for health, for the brain, and for the spirit of all the family members. A few months back, she joined us to talk about family dinners and how important they really are to us. I began the interview by pointing out that family dinner can have benefits for all parts of our lives. Yeah, it makes a huge difference, especially for children. And and the problem why we don't have family dinners like we did years ago is that everybody is so overscheduled. You know, the kids have endless activities that, you know, they have practices that go into the dinner hour. They have performances. They have um, dad doesn't get home. Mom doesn't get home from the from work. Yeah. So uh, family dinner sort of goes by the wayside. Uh, you know, there may be, and there probably is food in everybody's house, but people aren't sitting down around the table and talking. And there have been endless amounts of studies that show the more family dinners you have, and ideally there should be four, minimum of four a week. Four family dinners a week. Right. It shows that um, particularly with older children, there is less likelihood that um, one of your children will get into risky behavior Hmm. um, like drugs and alcohol. It's um, family dinners in many ways um, prevent eating disorders. Among wow. the children. Now, why? So, why is it? What is it about the dinner? Is it the dinner or is it just the sociality with the family? What is it? Well, it's, it's or all of it. the dinner. It's the idea that uh, children feel secure. They feel they have someone they can talk to. And they feel that uh, they're a group. It, it brings solidarity to the family. So there's a sense of security and safety that while, yes, it's a dinner, these, all these other things are being built around that dinner. Mm. It really and, is, huh? Because you you're going to have conversation time. You're going to be able to look in your kid's eyes and see what's going and sense what's going on. It's, I mean, yeah, it's, well, it's you powerful. you find out, you know, what happened in, during the day with them. You may see a hesitation in your child who doesn't want to talk about something. So after dinner, you go, you know, you get him privately or her privately and say, well, what's up? What went on at school today that you didn't want to talk about? Mm. So that you can, you know, you get a feeling of where um, there might be danger or where there's, you know, a hot spot or something that's bothering your child. And, you know, that all adds to the feeling that I can turn to mom and dad. Yeah. I mean, and but, that's that like that is probably what we're all aching for, right? Is to have that connection to to some bigger thing or some bigger unit. Yeah, I mean, that's why relatives are so important. If you have relatives close by, include them occasionally. Uh, grandparents are fabulous. Um, for you know, you may have a teenager who doesn't want to talk to you about something, but feels comfortable with their grandparent, hmm. and will bring it up with the grandparent. Um, so we really underestimate the value of family dinner. Yeah. In so many ways, I mean, when you look at little children, young children, um, 
their vocabularies expand greatly just hearing the conversation between mom and dad. And it doesn't matter if you have one child or five children there. The whole, just the conversation, talking about where you may want to go on vacation. Um, you improve your child's self-esteem by asking their opinions. Yeah. And what do they think about? It's also a great time to bring up, um, you know, there's so much celebrity gossip and celebrities are always getting in trouble and doing horrible things. Uh-huh. It's a great time to say, oh, did you see the news about and talk about, you know, I called Justin Bieber um, a parent's helper, really. (laughs) Yeah, really. Really, because he gives you so many takeoff points. Yeah. Behavior is so horrible. Content moments, right, where we could use that to teach. You can teach. Or, you know, on a more depressing level, let's say there's a fire mm-hmm. and you ha- in, you know, in, in town somewhere. You have a chance to talk about fire safety. You yeah. say, oh, you know, they had a fire. It was only in the kitchen. But let's talk about what we would and do. And go into all the safety issues you want your child to know yeah. about. You know, using matches, um, putting a fire in the fireplace, um, hot things on the stove, and so forth. Because there are so many um, topics that just come up on the news. Just if you watch the news, my my children, we sat down just yesterday, and they had a lot of questions about stuff that was going on in the news. And um, and it's just the the deal is that that I think makes dinner so important is. It's an essential time anyway. I call it – it's like a transition point, right, where we know how the dinner goes. We know how long it goes. We know we're going to have it every night or four or five times a week. And so it almost makes it a consistent ritual that we could easily take advantage of if we just prioritized it. That is true. I want to backtrack a second when we're talking about news and things going on in the community, and I use Almost all negative examples. Yeah. But it's also a great time to talk about your family values, and you can do that in terms of something that um, some community service project or people who are donating to uh, help MS or a disease. Um, You can talk about... um, oh, you know, this would be a good time to go through your toys and see what we can donate to a shelter or that kind of thing. So That's a great idea. It has a positive spin as well yeah. as using the negative news. And and you can even take uh, you can take a situation in the news and, and contrast it to your value system. And I love that. It's, it's a major teaching moment. And you know it's going to happen every night. And so even if nothing big emerges from the dinner, then it's just a good, safe dinner. If something does emerge, it's just a moment to continually check in. And I love the idea, too, of just being able to look in your kids' eyes and kind of take a test of where they are. That's right. But also, I I don't want to have parents leaving this conversation thinking, I have to do something important tonight. I mean, it isn't. it just happens. Yeah. You know, it, it's spontaneous. Um, you know, your child may be talking about a new toy, or you may be talking about a piece of artwork he brought home, and you can, 
you know, it's a great way to praise your child. So, uh, you know, gathering around the table is also a good time for building your children's self-esteem. Yeah. You know, if you have a, a second grader or a first grader uh, or kindergarten child who's brought home a picture, you can talk about, you know, ask how they pick their colors or what gave you the idea for that picture. Um, so those are all, mm. you don't want to just say great job, yeah. great picture, but you do want to get your child to express themselves. And by asking those questions, he gets the message that, he did a really good job and can be proud of himself. Yeah, that's powerful. You know, same for sporting events. Yeah. How did you, you know, how did you squeeze in there and make that basket? Great advice uh, from Dr. Susan Newman about family dinners. Think about it. How are you doing with your family? All of these benefits by sitting down and having a meal. Again, you don't need to do it every single day, but three, four times a week. Let's just let's just make that happen for our families. So powerful. And, and really, something that will not only unify you, but, uh, but hopefully, you know, give you the time you need to tutor up your kids and, and to help them become the people that they need to be. We'll continue the journey, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. When I think of bromance, I don't think of anybody more than Terry South, uh, who's been researching friendships and male friendships and bromances. Yeah, I, I Googled how to make a friend. And there's been a recent study published. Oh, really? Yeah. So what have you learned about friend making? So, now, now this is, you, you did this because your wife said, Terry, we need to get you a friend. She said that multiple times. She's yeah. also said that she needs to make more friends because yes. we both get so caught up in what yeah. we're doing. You're we in never, your life. And all I want to do is sit in my house, pull the blinds, and get through the <laughs> 200 shows recorded on my DVR. But no one wants me to do that. Yeah, so. that's, yeah. They're what are you going to do? You. Jeffrey Hall, Associate Professor of Communication Studies at the University of Kansas, set out mm. to find the answer to the study, to the question of how long does it take to make a friend. Okay. 355 adults yeah. who had recently moved and were getting to know a new acquaintance were asked a series of questions. They described how much time they spent with, that, with a person, how they typically spent those hours together, and how close they felt over time. He also, Hall, the professor, also asked 112 university freshmen who had just moved to their college town, similar questions, went through their experience, and here's what he found. Okay. It takes about 40 to 60 hours of time spent together in the first few weeks after meeting for people to form a casual friendship. 40 to 60 hours for casual friendship to occur. Okay. To transition from casual friend to friend, it takes about 80 to 100 hours of together time. Wow. That's a lot of friends. Yeah. And then it says for friends to become good or best friends, which I was told once that as an adult male, you never have. You can't have a best friend anymore. You have a wife. Okay. Who told you that? A guy I used to work okay. with. That was funny. So for friends to become good or best friends, it takes about 200 or more hours spent together hmm. to have a best friend. A bestie. Now, you would think a best friend would be someone you want to confide in. Yeah. So maybe the 200 hours is to build that level of trust where you feel that person is someone right. who you could talk to and they would, you know, respect yeah. your, you know, 
thoughts and give you ideas that you respect. Okay, that's interesting. Different stages of a person's life may require more time or less time investment. Uh, he says, would a single young adult from form friendships faster than a married middle-aged person? That's a question Hall can't answer with this study. Yeah. But probably you would think just because the married middle-aged person has other things going on than living in a dorm. Right. Well, okay, what do you what do you think about this? Because uh, it seems like I if I'm at work all day, I have a bunch of guys around me, people around <clears throat> me. I feel like they're my friends. Right. And it says here, hours spent together strongly predicted friendship closeness, but not if that time was spent at work or in school, places where people weren't interacting by choice. Ah. You have to make the choice to interact to form friendships, which explains huh. why you feel like you have this friendship at work, yeah. but when you see that person outside of work, it's weird. Well, it's totally weird. Because you're like, whoa. Do we hug or do we that, that's that's where, That's where I have my bubbles, right? I have yeah. work, I have home. When they cross... Yeah, weird stuff. It's like in Ghostbusters. You don't cross the stream from the the the, the yeah. packs, right? From the the. It's a great metaphor. Yeah, it's going to blow up. There's explosions that cause <laughs> Never problems. Never cross your streams. Never cross the streams. The best way to spend time seemed to be just hanging out together, watching TV or playing video games. People became closer by doing things they liked and enjoyed each other's company while doing it. Yeah. Whereas work, you're you have to be here. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. But now, okay, so watch, though. But I think it's more still compartmentalized because if I go to work, I have those people I hang out with at work. Right. Then if I go and then if I want to choose, I mean, I don't see where I would be like, hey, I'm just going to now choose to call Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy and I are going to just go sit at the park and talk. I don't. Yeah. So so it seems like what I would call Jimmy to do is, hey, do you want to go to a game? Right. Do you want to go to on a bike ride? So it's still based on a hobby. Mm-hmm. It's not based on you. No. It's still based on what we will do together. Right. But that hobby will grow as you spend more time together than the friendship grows separate from necessarily the hobby. Yeah, but I'm only ch- I mean if, yeah, I know. if if you can't go to the game, I'll I'm still going. I'll just I'll take somebody someone else. else. Yeah. It's not like, "Oh, okay, I'll just sit at home then." Cuz you can't go. I Right. It just seems like it's he says, different for me. Uh, time spent talking didn't make people particularly closer, but chatting was better when they were striving to make a connection, hmm. catching up with their friends, asking them how their day was going and how their day was going, and joking around. Small talk, on the other hand, seemed to be the enemy of friendship. People who talked about mundane topics became less close over time. Really? Yeah, that makes sense. As far as <laughs> small talk's boring, is what they're saying. Right. And it's what you do when you're stuck in a party and you can't leave. You talk about the weather. Well, and isn't small talk really interpreted individually? Like, oh, my heavens, all he talks about is cars. Yeah. That seems like small talk to me. But for two people that love cars, it's nirvana. Hmm. It's heaven on earth. <laughs> so what do you think? Do you think this is uh... – I, No, I think, I think it's accurate. But I um, – again, I'm a guy that's a fairly sensitive guy. And I don't, I, I'm not, I don't, maybe it's because I, my living is talking. Mm. So what I really want in a friend is them to just shut their mouth. And listen? No. Oh. Just, let's just sit in quiet. Sit in silence. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't sound very friendly. <laughs> trying well, to, I'm trying to, we're reaching out to this uh, professor. See yeah, if he'll let's join us that. and you can explore that, more of these I think questions. I fascinating. What I want in a friend is like a mute. 
Just somebody that – and so, I, don't, I don't want to talk. I just want us to sit there. And in effect, I have that by not really associating with anyone. It's yeah. just quiet. It's I know, great. but then we worry about you. No, it's fine. I'm good. Yeah. I'm happy. I, I feel as if I'm fulfilled. Yeah. If I need something more, there's a video game I can play. Yeah. Great. You can go Fortnite, people. <laughs> You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. One of the things I studied in my doctoral program is uh, a theory that's called symbolic interaction theory. More than you'll ever probably want to know or remember. But the idea behind the theory is it's a social psychology theory which basically says that all symbols in life are created, right? So you're not born just knowing something. You You don't necessarily know what a pen is. You don't know who your family are in relation, I mean, as you would know them today. But that that symbol, that that information becomes different as you interact with it over time. And so if we interact positively on certain things, we tend to feel more positively about those things. If we interact more negatively on things, we tend to feel more negative towards those things. And our symbols over time end up being created. Which is why, you know, when you're first in love, the symbol of kissing is a very positive, incredible symbol. But if you're mad at each other and you've spent 15 years fighting, then the symbol of kissing is just a symbol of loneliness because we never do it anymore. And so um, why I bring this up is that I, we talk a lot about creating resilient kids, creating more resilient families. And I, one of the things I was thinking about recently is maybe what we need to get better at is sharing some of our stories as we interact with our family and our kids. And I think there's certain stories that induce or create more resiliency for our kids and our families. And these stories, a lot of times, they they may be told, but they may not be told in a way that you're trying to foster the principle of resiliency. Uh, resiliency is that ability to to bend and and twist and kind of handle the winds of the world and um, and still be able to kind of snap back to your to your healthy state and so um, one of the things I wanted to talk about are some of these stories that you should probably be sharing with your family. I know I need to be sharing more of with my family. These stories, by the way, will start to normalize the fact that life is hard life there are some struggles. But it will also normalize the fact that it's through pain that you progress, um, that it's not the trial that's the key. It's the response to the trial. Um, it might also share with your kids that you were like them. I've just noticed with my own children that I end up having opportunity after opportunity to share these stories as they you know, are coming to me and we're dealing with their life trials. Uh, but it might be important to share a few of these. One of the stories that we may we we need to make sure we're sharing with our kids is that what I call the the who am I story. When did you realize and get a really good identity or idea of who you are? Everybody, you may have had that moment when you know you were tempted or somebody asked you to do something that was against your value system and maybe you did do it or maybe you didn't, but you really started to come to this realization that you know what? I I'm better than that, you know, or the identity that you realize that you could probably you can you could be a doctor or you could you could get into this school that you want to get into. And you started to form your identity as a teacher or as a, a you know, a mathematician or a scientist. That's the who am I story. 
And I think kids, especially like my college kids, need to know how I came to know who I was. So I try to share that story. Another story you could share is the what matters most story, like where you actually learned a very important value lesson on one of your values, and you just share the story. I remember working on Sunday uh, at a golf course. My entire life, uh, I was always taught, you don't work on Sunday. Sunday's God's day. Give it to God. Well, I, you know, had a chance to work at a golf course, and that would give me free golfing opportunities. So I started working on Sunday, and I always felt bad about it. And then one day as I'm working on this Sunday, I'm driving a Cushman golf truck around the golf course and ended up crashing it right into a fence and ripped a fence down, basically, a big metal fence. And uh, I was thrown 20, 30 feet and messed up a little bit. And right then, as I'm walking back to get help uh, from my fellow workers, I realized, yeah, I don't value working on Sunday. I just don't value. I just don't value working on Sunday. So anyway, I ended up realizing that um, I, I need to I need to not work on Sunday anymore. And I walked right in and said, yeah, I've crashed this and I can't work on Sundays anymore. <laughs> anyway, they looked at me like, okay. But that was a really interesting story to share with my kids. And uh, we're going to constantly be talking more about the stories we need to be sharing because they're not going to learn something that you don't share. But some of these stories are, are groundbreaking and it actually makes you more human in their eyes. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, nothing is more nuanced than love and dating, is it? There's limitless amounts of background and preferences, personal issues that people experience. We have a history uh, that predates the our love. And, you know, is there any way to navigate through all of these crazy things? Well, science suggests that actually understanding relationships can be a lot simpler than it seems. A few months back, I spoke with Dr. Emil Levine about his book, Attached, and he gave me some important insights about attachment. We started the interview talking about attachment and the science behind it. So, yeah, so apparently there is um, there's, um, a science behind how we behave in close relationships. And that science, it really started uh, these attachment styles that were first found in children and how children uh, behave with parents. But then in the 80s, two scientists thought that maybe they can actually, that we also behave in our close relationships, um, also according to those attachment styles. And they did some of this research and found that indeed that was the case. And that opened up the whole science of 20 years of, uh, of the attachment and how that translates in close to close romantic relationships. So... <laughs> What I did with my co-author, we basically took that science, which was just like something that was uh, used in academia, and we translated it into a tool that you can use in everyday life. That's great. Now, talk talk about because uh, the book in, in your book, you, you um, this this concept of attached is broken down in the theory, I guess, as well as in your book into into three different categories. Right? Is it, is it three ca- categories? Walk so us through those categories. Styles. Yeah. Right. So three attachment styles. There's anxious, avoidant, and secure. 
And it all has to do with how comfortable you feel with intimacy and closeness, but also how easily you detect threats in your relationships and uh, your certain belief systems. So if you, are, if you love intimacy and closeness, but you're also very sensitive to potential threat in your relationships, and you have this idea that you're going, to be, you're going to love more than others will love you and that people are going to leave you, uh, then you have an anxious attachment style. And, but if you're warm and loving and you love to be close and you love to be intimate, yet you don't have a very sensitive uh, radar system. Like a lot of things go over your head and it doesn't really, many things don't really bother you that much, then you have a secure attachment style. And then people who have an avoidant attachment style are people who also want to be in a relationship, but once they get close to someone, they start to feel very uncomfortable with too much closeness and they find ways to keep their partners at arm's length. Uh, and they have this belief system that they have to sort of stay uh, independent and self-sufficient. Uh, and so they push their other partner away. So these are the three attachment hmm. styles. And I don't know if you can, but this, uh, there's two, two of these attachment styles. When they get together, that's really a recipe of a lot of um, drama. And that's the anxious and the avoidant. Because one wants a lot of intimacy and closeness. The other one wants to minimize. One is very sensitive to a lot of potential threats. The other one instills a lot of potential threats in their relationship. So that's kind of like these two attachment styles are not a good match to one another usually. And then, um, but I guess too, if you had a secure attachment uh, person in the marriage or the relationship and an anxious, you is it possible uh, – Dr. Levine, that the anxious one could end up driving the secure one away? So that's a great question. So first of all, I have to tell you also that the good news is that about uh, the vast majority of people in the population are secure. About 54% of people in the population are secure. About 25% are avoidant and 20% are anxious. So the good news is that the majority are secure. And Really, in the, in the process of writing the book, and we interviewed a lot of secure people, we've learned to fall in love with the secures in this world. We like to call them the supermates of evolution because um, the amazing thing that usually happens is actually the opposite. That is that you someone secure, both anxious and avoidant, they will teach you how to become more secure. Because it's almost like having a built-in uh, relationship therapist in the relationship. And they will sort of show you how um, all these different tools of how to become more secure. Uh, so that's why for people who are dating, um, and we have a questionnaire in the book and also on our website, attachthebook.com, that you can do uh, so you can tell what attachment style you are, but also you can tell, you can learn to tell what attachment styles other people are. So it takes a little practice in the beginning. Uh, but we find that it's crucial because the research says that people who end up being in a relationship with someone secure are more satisfied over time, or happier over time. Is uh, do you have any research on the percentage of people that are too secures, the two secure attachment styles that are married or together? Oh, so a lot. There's a lot of um, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, marriage between secure people. There's also people like secure who actually end up with avoidant and, and secure end up with anxious. I think the one really interesting piece of, um, of um, uh, statistic, I mean, the one interesting data is that you would think that two avoidants would be perfect for one another. Right. Both of them don't want 
they like really value their independence. Both of them really don't want the other person to uh, rely on them too much. Uh, but the the really the strangest thing is that the two avoidants hardly ever end up being together in a relationship. That's the only combination that hardly ever happens. And no one knows exactly why, but I would think that there just simply lacks the glue to keep two people together. Hmm. It's is, um, is is it changeable? So can we learn uh, the healthier attachment style and eventually change, or is this something that just stays with us and we learn to cope with? Right. So that's part of the reason why me uh, and my co-author decided to write this book because attachment styles are changeable, uh, and in fact, um, like twenty-five percent of people can change their attachment style in the course of four years. And so we found it very promising that it's not something that stays stable. And the easiest way to change your attachment style is actually is to sort of meet someone secure. Because, again, they will teach you how to uh, – they, they're very, very good in, in relationships, and they will teach you how to sort of behave in a more secure way. And the thing is, one of the things that we did in the book is that we – so after interviewing, we're sort of really doing interviews with dozens of people who are secure. So we've come up, we've seen that there is a method to their secret. And we sort of, we write that, we've sort of written out a lot of different uh, techniques that they use. How are they so secure? What is the secret behind their success? Hmm. You know, uh, I think this is really powerful. I work a lot with couples in their communication and I can see these these styles uh, perpetuate one of the big problems I see a lot, which is kind of the pursuer withdrawer, the demand withdrawer pattern of fight or flight. And I mean, it, we think that if you're married to somebody that that is uh, an avoidant attachment, you might be wondering why are they why don't they engage? Why do they always run away? Why why are they not there? And then. You can just you might keep pushing, and that keeps pushing them farther away. It's a it's an interesting uh, dilemma, isn't it? Yes. So that uh, particular uh, what you're describing that particular that's something that we like to call the anxious avoidant trap. Yeah. Like someone uh, the avoidant who keeps sort of the, he has he or she by the way it's not always a man. It's like both men and women are can be avoidant have this world belief that they have to be self reliant. And on their and independent, and then when you come and you make um, demands of them, or in, in, like in a in a in a fight or in a, in an argument, so a fight and an argument is really an opportunity to become very close. If uh, all couples fight, um, but the thing is, can you the resolution of a fight can like really carry the opportunity of actually becoming closer, and that's something that's very hard for them to tolerate. So they sort of like clam up. Uh, and they don't really know how to sort of engage. And also they don't like the closeness that it brings. So there are little ways in which you can kind of like find um, little ways in which you can sort of find a way to communicate things to someone who is avoidant without making them feel that they're cornered into like this closeness place where they don't really, they can't handle. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but I have to say for someone who is secure and that's, something that both anxious and avoidant don't really understand, and that's something that secure people understand. It's almost like they, it's, for them it's second nature, um, and that's really the basis of the, uh, why their relationships are so good. They have, I like to call it the happy wife, happy life philosophy. 
they have this innate understanding that your couple's well-being uh, is also your well-being. Right. And people don't understand that that's, and it's just not a metaphor. It's not only just psychological well-being because uh, studies show that people uh, that are in better relationships, uh, it's even if they if they had a high blood pressure, they, it was actually easier to treat it, and they they were much more um, they were less sick. Or there's even one study that showed that if you're in a good relationship and you get a cut, it will heal faster hmm. than if you're in a bad relationship. So. It's not just the psychological well-being. It's also really physiological. I think you have to understand how much we're dependent on one another. The dependency is not an option. It always happens once we get attached to one another. Then we can understand how important it is uh, to, keep, um, that, to keep the other partner happy and to sort of listen to what his needs or her needs are. Talk about you have a, a great story um, about uh, is it Tamara or Tamara uh, in your in your book yeah, Tamara. Tamara, talk to us about that story. I really like this story because I really think it exemplifies a lot of things that a lot of people really identify with. Uh, this is someone that who is like really very successful. She's like this uh, high-powered New York uh, person has a great job, has a lot of friends, and really does it really, really well um, in every aspect of her life, except for um, what happened is that she met this guy who completely, she completely fell in love with, who had these promises of like, you know, we can do things together. You don't have to be alone. And she sort of fell head over hill, uh, only to find out later on that he all of a sudden, at the same time sort of became distant and pushed her away. And there were a lot of mixed messages and, she became completely fixated on the relationship, and uh, and it took a while for her to sort of be able to let that go and get over that relationship. Um, and I really think it's like people have to understand that I love that story because people underestimate the power of attachment, and we don't understand what attachment is all about and really what it is. It's a, it's a very powerful safety mechanism that we have as humans because as humans, we feel safety. We think, well, if we have a lot of money in the bank, if we have like a nice home, a roof over our head, that's how we feel secure. But that's not how we feel secure. Uh, we really feel secure through other people. Um, and um, so for us, knowing if we have a stable someone that we can count on, that's how we feel secure. So mm. basically what happened with her is that she found someone, but that person was not reliable. And she completely unraveled. Um, but then I think the story has a happy ending because afterwards, finally broke off. She kind of sort of could have, she put her, got herself together again. And then sort of knowing about attachment, she ended up meeting, find, finding someone secure. Um, and now she actually is having, like, she has, I think she already has, like, two kids. And um, her life is very, very different. Hmm. But it really brings to the fore the importance of understanding attachment and the attachment style when you're dating find the right person for you and to also save you a lot of heartache because that pain is real pain people really the pain of of of, um of losing someone like that is is awful And, and you can i guess that's why it's so important to know what your style is because if you've had a hard relationship or two you might it might even be more more natural for you to avoid uh wanting to connect and find somebody except 
you also bring up in your book that, you know, that need to have a close relationship is embedded in our genes. It's part of us. Right. It's completely part of us. So we have this system uh, in, our, in our brain that sort of build, it's built, it's designed to pick someone up from the, someone out from the crowd and make them special and unique. And once that happens, we sort of really, it's not so easy to make them ununique. <laughs> it's actually, it's really a biological process. Uh, and it's designed to make us stick by one another no matter what. And every once in a while I see like uh, something in the paper about the power of attachment, and it really sort of moves me. There was another, I think uh, a few years ago, there was this uh, boat that sank in the Mediterranean, and there's this uh, woman who said, uh, my husband was there wearing the only one life vest, and he gave me his life vest. That's the last time I saw him. Mm. And that's kind of like the power, is, and then it's he, they, he sacrificed himself for her. And that is the power of attachment. It makes us so close to the point that we're almost like one unit. Yeah. Uh, and that we will really go out of our way to protect the other person. So, but the thing is, is that we have to understand that not all, um, not everybody will actually be a good match. And there is a science sort of to really help us navigate who will be a good match for us and who won't be. And a lot of people don't know that, so they go, oh, if we like the same football uh, team or if we like the same baseball, if we like sports, they look for different signs to sort of tell them whether this is the right match for them or not. Hmm. It has nothing to do with all of these things. Right. Not with either like common hobbies. It has nothing to do with that. It has something to do with a certain belief system about intimacy and closeness and how we sort of function in that realm. And that all has to do with the attachment style. Yeah, this is good. Man, this is, uh, it's so important. We appreciate you. Uh, Dr. Amir Levine, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your book, Attached. I mean, we need it. We need the help. Again, thank you very much. You bet. Go, everybody, go to the book, atta- go to the website, attachedthebook.com, attachedthebook.com, and you can take their compatibility test. You can find out what you are. You can find out what your partner is and, and learn, just like uh, Dr. Amir was teaching us, how to, how to bridge that gap. Get out of yourself and love your partner their way. And, and also, you can also learn what you need to become more strong, more independent, less afraid powerful stuff, folks. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. What's the matter with you, boy? You too stupid to do what your coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back. You know, as we talk about attachment, um, think about it. If you are vulnerable... And it's not safe for you to share with the person that you love, the person that you care about, then you're going to take on some pretty different patterns, right? You're going to become either anxious and where, where you're constantly wondering what they're thinking. You're, you're trying to micromanage the relationship. You, you are always trying to check if they're in, if they care about you, if they love you enough. And that anxiousness creates its own stress in the relationship. Or you might become detached where you just don't care. You know, if, if you grew up in a relationship with your parents where you didn't sense that they cared, you might realize that in your most loving, intimate relationships that it, you, it's just safer to not care because every time you care, you get hurt. So 
if every time you care, you get hurt, you might detach. If every time that you care and you notice as, as a child or in some of your relationships as adults, if every time you try to you uh, you care, others pull away, then you might get more anxious about it. And then or you might do both. You're anxious until they don't care. Then you detach. Either way or whatever pattern we're using causes future problems in our relationships. So if you notice in your own, you know, love relationship with with your partner and the person you care about, then that they keep pulling away and they keep like not caring and they they have a harder time, you know, really, truly having a sincere, intimate moment with you emotionally where they're vulnerable and they share, then we might be dealing with an attachment disorder. And there, there are now there's a huge science around this. There are books you can go get. We've talked about it on the show, like with Amir uh, Levine and um, also with uh, Sue Johnson. And she's written a book called Hold Me Tight, which is one great book. Uh, she wrote another book called Love Sense. There's a lot of information out there. But these patterns are real. And they keep us from connecting. And they also keep us – they actually perpetuate one of the biggest conflict resolution and conflict issues that we have in our marriages where some of us become what we call pursuers that are aggressively kind of constantly pursuing issues and conflict in the relationship to try to fix them, right? And they might be doing that out of their anxiousness. The anxiously uh, attached might become more of the pursuer in the relationship and then the detached becomes more of the withdrawer, the one that's not engaging, the one that's not in the relationship. And these 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 patterns of pursue and withdraw create the age-old issue of, holy cow, she's always nagging, she's always doing, he's always disconnected, he's just always on his phone, he's ignoring me. And it creates the pattern of the fight or flight. It's it's just relationship chaos. And we have a lot of it. In fact, many uh, experts believe that uh, millennials have about uh, 50 to 60 percent of millennials have this attachment uh, disorder and um, probably about 40 percent of ex-gen, my, you know, my age, have it as well. So we're not necessarily raising children that can safely attach. And some of that is because we're just not protecting them enough. We're not there for them enough. We're not connecting into them enough. And as parents, we need to pay attention to this. Do you connect into your kids? Do you make it safe? And by the way, you could make it so safe, too safe for them as well, right? So if you're constantly hovering and helicopter parenting them, they may not be learning that they can be resilient. They may not be learning that, they that hey, you're smart, you're big, you can handle this. So... We also don't want to overdo it, right? There's just this fine balance when it comes to our relationships. And not easy, not saying it's easy at all, but um, it is it is what it is. And then if we're not careful, then we end up paying the price down the road with our with us as adults when we can't attach, we can't connect in. But it is the most beautiful thing I've seen with my clients when once they start to see this pattern – because the pattern of being able to attach in or the, the, the detaching in the relationship, once you see the pattern, you can actually do something about it. Sue Johnson calls it the dance. Once you start to see that dance that you're doing, 
then you don't have to keep chasing that dance. And then we can call it out and say, oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. Our little five-year-olds are coming out, creating havoc. And all of a sudden, we could just stay in the space with each other and help each other heal, help each other create something more powerful, more real. But if, you're, if you notice that you have this in your relationship, if you notice you have any attachment or detachment going on, then quit pretending like it's not happening. Quit blaming your partner for all of these problems, and let's start learning about it. Let's fix it, and let's fix it as fast as we can. Let's get on it. Go get a counselor that does emotional focus therapy. Start getting the books. Start reading about attachment disorders, studying it out. If you know you've had a hard childhood, you probably have it. So look at it and start dealing with it. And I'm telling you, it'll work. It'll work. Trust the coach. Trust the coach. You can get help on this. And then uh, let's do it that way instead of trying to go through three or four more relationships. Anyway, just a little advice. I'm just a coach. Come on. Your guide on the side. Don't know everything, but I know a little bit about a few things. Let's start getting the help we need. We'll continue the journey. More uh, interesting insights uh, straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. You know, Dr. Susan Newman is a social psychologist who specializes in issuing uh, issues affecting family life, like eating dinner with your family and, and the great benefits that come from a consistent you know, ritual of eating together. And uh, we've, we've had her on the show before a few months back, and we wanted to kind of reconnect and revisit on some of her ideas. So we're going to replay an interview uh, or part of an interview, and I continue the interview um, by pointing out that you can intentionally make family dinner a memory-making moment. You can make it intentional. Um, I have a set of what I call the cardinal rules at the beginning and the beginning of the book, and one of them is make one little thing mi- the minimum of one little thing a day. Hmm. So, I mean, it can just be um, a hug, a kiss, and an I love you. Yeah. But... You do it every day. You, um, some people make it a house rule. You can't leave the house without a hug and a kiss goodbye. That's great. Um, and you can make a, a designer, I call it a designer kiss, and it, it could be a, a peck on each cheek for one child. Hmm. It could be two pecks on the forehead, that, that child's special kiss. Um, That's cool. So, you know, that kind of adds to their feeling important and special. But people get lost in this whole idea of they have to do some extravagant vacation Uh or they have to um, build a treehouse with their child, which is a good thing. I'm not knocking it. But But that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, yeah, and you may not have the time. But what's interesting about memory building is that it's the most offbeat, unusual Sometimes it's a mishap, a misadventure that becomes the memory. Yeah. And it's not the big splashy vacation. Uh, Right. But it's the time your kids decided to make a birthday cake by themselves and the icing, instead of they wanted pink or purple, it was brown. (laughs) And so they never forget the brown icing. Yeah. In fact, you know, we had one of those moments on Thanksgiving. We a few years ago we went out of town and we didn't plan. 
we didn't really know that every business in the world shuts down on Thanksgiving. So we just thought we'd go to dinner. We ended up going a little later than we thought. And when we got to this restaurant, it was closed. And then we went to every other restaurant. They were all closed. Everything was closed except like an IHOP. And we had Thanksgiving dinner at an IHOP. And everyone in my family ate something different. So somebody had a hamburger and somebody had – and um, nobody had turkey. I, I think actually my wife may have had turkey. <laughs> And it it's now become an incredible memory that we could laugh about, yet it was a mistake. Right. I mean, that's, that's a great example of what I'm talking about. You just never know what silly thing or that wasn't so silly. Yeah, but, but just but, kind of, yeah, weird, out yeah. of the blue thing. Yeah, well, that happened to us once. We were somewhere and there was no turkey to be had. <laughs> so we said, okay, we'll have cranberry and cheese sandwiches that's as close as that's we as can close get. as you're getting and that's the memory in our family yeah i mean really the memory is that's that's what's going to make the legacy right it's to have lived and not be remembered maybe we didn't live that is true i mean but it's simple things yeah like you can call the kitchen counter in your house the diner and then everybody you know, gathers around and um, you take pretend orders because mm-hmm. I do not recommend cooking <laughs> different things for right. all the different people in your house. Yeah. Let but, them order whatever they want, but everyone's yeah, getting so kid, roast yeah, beef. Or you could turn on music before or after dinner and spend two minutes just dancing around. Yeah. And so that becomes, oh, I remember that. Um, you just any little quirky thing you do, and there's 500 ideas in this book. More Is there than really? 500 That's great. Ideas. Um, for young children who are just starting school, you can take take a certain area of the house and call it the study hall. It could be um, the kitchen table. It could be a room in the den. It could be. Um, their, you know, in their bedroom at a desk. Yeah. But by naming it, it gets remembered. No, it's so true. And so I guess part of this key is keep it simple and then repeat it regularly. Yeah, repetition is definitely the key because if you do it over and over, it, it gets embedded. But, um, you know, you can make your children call them assistant to the chef. Yeah. Or going back to your example of Thanksgiving, where you really are home having Thanksgiving, you can make one child the mashed potato queen. <laughs> so every year she gets to mash the potatoes if that's what yeah. you're having. Or somebody can be the salad person and mm-hmm. you give her a fancy name. Um, all those things that you do each year um, become stored in their minds as um, a little thing long remembered. And how powerful is that? And that becomes that's that memory is going to last forever, and and it becomes kind of a building block for their identity, for their place in this family. And the interesting part is, um, I know uh, my daughters repeat what we did mm-hmm. with their children. So you're not only building their memory bank, but you're passing on traditions. Uh, You know, it could be the tradition that you always have a lemon pie. Mm. 
for Thanksgiving or for Christmas, whatever holiday you're celebrating. Um, it could be that um, as your children get older, you put them in charge of dinner one night. Yeah. So this uh, Tuesday night is Lindsay's night. Yeah. Um, it, it, you know, and you get help from the kids, but they feel that they're in charge. It really is. It's it's just it seems again, Susan, so very basic, and and I, I think you keep alluding to this idea that we we've, we've got to keep it simple because as humans, it's, it seems like we just tend to overdo it. We think of well, if, if we're going to do a little you know memory here and a little ritual, we may as well make it big, and we we kind of pack a lot in. But you're just saying repetition, keep it simple, and yeah, uh, and, and make the people the priority. Yeah, and you don't, I mean, to do any of these things I'm talking about and that are in the book, you don't have to spend money. Right. You know, it's just sit down with your child and you could draw together. You could have what I call a chit-chat. And every night when you tuck your child in, you start a little discussion. That was Dr. Susan Newman, who's, uh, again, walking us through how to uh, create that connection with our family eating dinner together, one way to do it, all the way down to just child discussions and and time to hang out together. Now let's get to some empty news. Uh, Jeff, I'm sure, has been researching nonstop today. You've had a lot of time today to research. Yes. I mean, because you get up at (laughs) 2 in the morning to to get this show together. That would be Terry. I don't get get up up till like 2.30. Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you – I know we've talked about this before on the show, but I'm curious to know if you could steal anything from a store, what would it be? Not that you would steal. Yeah, I wouldn't steal. But if you could, what would it be? Well, I would steal what I – my favorite story in the news is always when people are stealing like barbecue ribs. Oh, yeah. From the butcher and then they just shove them down in their – Baggy pants, and then they, you know, go home and make a rib <laughs> meal. That's what I. Yeah. Uh, how about corned beef? Uh, would not, you steal corned I, beef? I wouldn't, I wouldn't steal corned beef. Okay. Uh, maybe this will sell you on it. Would you steal canned corned beef? No. Definitely not, huh? Not going for the corned. Well, beef. there's a 35 year old guy in Guam who was caught stealing uh, two cases of 46 cans of corned beef from a market. And uh, it says that uh, the employees saw the man re-enter the store later in the day after he had multiple cans of corned beef. The employees say they confronted the man, at which point he ran and escaped. And I can only hope that they were in his pants because you can imagine him (laughs) trying to – Run with yeah. these 46 cans of no. corned beef but clanking around. But you hear around. the cans clankety, 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 clank? So just listen. Away. Yeah. Uh, they, they wrote down his license plate and the number of the car he was in, and police tracked it down. So it doesn't say in the story, but I have to assume that, you know, he where else could he have put him? Didn't mention anything no. about it's, a bag yeah. or a backpack. No, that's where they put him. It's got to be... His pants, and so maybe he should be a contestant on one of our newest game shows. Oh, what? There's a new game show that's setting out to answer the question, Will it fit? On Will It Fit, contestants try and squeeze various groceries into their pants. Items like a 20-pound bag of ice, a case of dog food, and a pineapple. Will it break? Will it hurt? And most importantly, will it fit? 
coming soon to BGC.